a privilege to be part of a singing church, so thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as it has been expressed this morning, we are desperate, we are needy for you to help us understand the glories of this passage, even more so to believe them, and then to live out the implications of these wonderful truths. So Lord, we do need your help. We ask this for your glory, Christ's exaltation, and our extreme joy. Amen. Bono from the 80s rock band U2. Where's Denny? He's my brother in this. He's probably the only one that even knows what I'm talking about here. But <clears throat> anyways, I'm going to go with it. Good cultural experience for the rest of you young people. I was thinking, wow, that was like the 80s, 85-ish. It's a long time ago before some of you were born. But you might know about it. Anyways, Bono uh, wrote a famous song called I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. The song begins with these words, Denny, please restrain yourself from singing with me. I've climbed the highest mountains, I've run through the fields only to be with you. I've run, I have crawled, I've scaled these city walls only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Now I'm told that it's actually a religious song, a gospel song. When I look at it, I think it's a, some kind of really bad love song. As Tim Hawkins says, you don't want to sing this at a wedding. But it's supposed to be a religious song, a gospel song, supposed to be talking about how nothing in life really satisfies. People seek fulfillment in relationships, other activities, but they always come up short. We were made for something more. That's kind of the idea of the song. So I look around here in Louisville, and it seems to me that people are seeking fulfillment in a variety of different ways. Extreme sports, possessions, sexual experiences prestige, political power, but these things don't satisfy. People still haven't found what they're looking for. And that's why I don't think that this is a gospel song, uh, because if it was a true gospel song, it would very clearly proclaim Christ, because he is the good news. But Christ does satisfy. The search is over. David Garland writes, scientists continue their search for the holy grail of science, The theory of everything, the simple set of laws that explains every complex detail of our universe. But Christ is the theological theory of everything. He is the key who unlocks the meaning and purpose of the universe. But he is not a set of physics laws. He is a person. The only way we can ever make sense of life and find our way in it is to recognize that Christ is the converging point of the transcendent God's activity in the arena of human history. He is the interpretive key for understanding the meaning of creation the purpose of life, and its goal. Brothers and sisters, friends, we need to have this high view of Jesus Christ. Life only makes sense when Jesus is rightfully understood. So the worldview questions of our day and age, uh, the questions, where did we come from? Why do we exist? Where are we going? Does life have any, any meaning? And so on and so forth. They're only truly answered in Christ. And so if we're going to try to make sense of our lives and the things going on around us and live fulfilled lives, we we must, we have to rightfully understand the truths in this wonderful text and then rightfully submit to this king. Jesus is the reason 
for our existence. Jesus is the goal of our existence. We have the right object of our worship. There's no other being worthy of our praise. There's no other cause dedicating, worth dedicating our lives to. Jesus is all and in all. Look no further. The search is over. We know Christ is the end of the line. Our text this morning declares this reality. Christ is preeminent. He is supreme over all things. He's worthy of your life. Because of this, live to please him. Humble yourself before him. Bow your knee to him. Fear him. And, and so I believe this, this text has a very unique way in Scripture to act as a refiner's fire. It purifies the soul. I think it's something like, it functions something like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and looking out and, and, and having a bunch of different emotions. A little bit of fear, like, wow, death is right there. If I fell off the precipice, there's some fear there. But also just awe and wonder at how huge it is. And our thoughts in those moments aren't of ourselves and, and, and who we are and how great we are, but of the greatness of the Grand Canyon. This text does that for Christ. And I think that, that we love it because of that. And so it eliminates pride. It's a cure for depression, produces contentment. This text, I believe, is a miracle cure for all mankind's problems, which is a pretty huge claim. Kind of sounds like some of the promises and claims our politicians are making this time of the year. Uh, but Christ doesn't disappoint. In fact, if anything, I've only understated the reality of things. Uh, those claims that I just made, those claims are huge, but this text goes beyond huge. Now, earlier in Colossians, Paul thanks God for the genuine salvation of the Colossian believers. And then he prays and he asks God that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then Paul goes on to describe what a life worthy of the Lord looks like. So it bears fruit. It increases with the knowledge of God. It endures with the strength God supplies, and it gives thanks with joy for God's work of salvation in and through Jesus Christ. And so as we're following the thought process here, we see that Paul's last uh, thoughts were on Christ, the beloved Son. He is the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul's prayer then has been winding and working its way to Christ. Some people view this text as the grounds for thanking the Father with joy so as to live in such a way to please Christ. Others simply see it as transition to the bulk or the body of the rest of this text. I think it's both of those combined. But either way, wherever we land there, now that Paul is on the subject of Christ, we see that, that his heart just explodes with this glorious picture of Christ's person and his work. See, it appears that some people were peddling a version of Jesus Christ that was blasphemous. It was this shallow, twisted, false view of Christ that apparently diminished his role in creation, his role in redemption, and if it would be believed, it would wreck a person's faith and rob a church of its joy. It was not unlike some of the low views of Jesus Christ that we see floating around in our day and age and in the churches in our country. Views that, that teach that Christ was simply a moral guide, a prophet among other prophets, or someone to profess faith in, but not someone worthy of radical discipleship of worship. You know, sometimes I think our society is just stuck in this, little, this picture that's on the NIV Bible of 
of Christ holding our lamb or, or, or some child sitting on his lap stroking this handsome guy's beard. And that's it. No fear. No standing on the precipice of the Grand Canyon. And this isn't the text that they think of when they think of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's response to this heretical teaching is this poem of Christ. This song of praise, as it's been called. Which can essentially be broken down into, I think, two main parts. Christ's preeminence over creation, and then Christ's preeminence over redemption or new creation. To be preeminent means to be first. It means to have paramount rank or dignity or importance. Other synonyms we could use to, to describe this word and concept are supremacy, domination, masterdom, and sovereignty. Christ is all of this and then some. And so Paul begins really uh, the thrust of his argument of this letter here with this poetic defense of Christ's person and work. These believers please Christ by thanking God with joy over the redemption which he accomplished in and through Jesus Christ. And I think Paul's helping them to see the one, who is, the one who is responsible for their redemption just so happens to be the same one that redeemed them. And he just so happens to be the same agent of creation. He couldn't be any higher. They have the right object of their worship. Their Savior is the preeminent one. He is worthy of their devotion. He is worthy of their worship. He is worthy of their dedication. N.T. Wright has noted here how someone who writes in this way, in the way that Paul writes, wants his or her readers to stop and think. I think he is absolutely spot on when he makes that comment. The point of these words and words like them are not for us to to read them and move on in our daily Bible reading and put a check there. That's not going to suffice the profundity of these words. But for us to slow down, to chew on them, to ponder their meaning, to ponder their application to meditate on them. You can't just dip the tea bag in and out when it comes to this text and think that, that it's going to somehow flavor their water enough to, to get a rich, rich taste. You've got to let that tea bag steep. And so that's what I want to do in part this morning. I want to stop and I want to think together on this picture of Jesus Christ. This morning then, under the, the heading of Christ's preeminence, In creation, that's all the further we'll get and only part of that, we're going to look at three key aspects of this preeminence and see how they work to ground Paul's prayer for these believers to please Christ, for us to please Christ. And so first we're going to learn, we're going to see here, that we're to live to please Christ with our lives because, as verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. The he here is clearly referring back to the beloved son of verse 13, in whose kingdom we have been transferred, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The beloved Son, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. That word image is used elsewhere in Scripture to refer simply to a physical resemblance, kind of like a copy, but it's also used to refer to a living image. You have an example of that in 1 Corinthians eleven seven, 7, where it says there, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image, same word, of the glory of God. And it's in that last sense of a living image that the word is used here because Jesus, we see, is described as the image of the invisible God. One of the well-known attributes of God is that he is invisible. He doesn't have a body. He can't be seen. He is spirit. That's systematic theology 101 or theology proper. And so in John 1.18, we learn no one has ever seen God because he's invisible. He's a spirit. 
The only God, Jesus Christ, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He's revealed him to us. So Jesus has revealed God to us in his own person. And that's the text we read earlier of Hebrews 13, 4. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. But I think as we're trying to understand the concept of image and how it applies to us, it's most helpful to note that this word is, is the very same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint or the LXX of Genesis 1.27, where it says there of mankind, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God he had created him, same word. And we learn from the Old Testament and from other ancient literature texts that that concept of image is referring to sonship and kingship, at least that. Hans Wolf explains how in the ancient East, the setting up of the king's statue was the equivalent of, of proclaiming the domination his domination over the sphere in which that statue was erected. When in the 13th century BC, the Pharaoh Ramesses II had his own image hewn out of the rock at the mouth of the Nairhel Keb on the Mediterranean north of Beirut, the image meant that he was the ruler of this area. Accordingly, man is set in the midst of creation as God's statue. He is evidence that God is the Lord of creation. But as God's steward, he also exerts his rule, fulfilling his task, not in arbitrary despotism, but as a responsible agent. His rule and his duty to rule are not autonomous. They are copies. And so this, this idea of the image of God is speaking of at least these two main functions. Mankind was created to be God's vice regents on earth, and he was also created to relate to God as sons, sons, sons and daughters. They were to be his representatives. They were to image forth God's glory on, on planet earth and so fill the globe with worshipers of Yahweh. They were to fill the land with those who represented God and his interests and proclaimed true things about him. But as we know from Genesis 3 and on, they failed. They sinned against God, and so uh, the image they were seeking to reflect and represent was tarnished. They ceased to perfectly reflect that image. But then comes Jesus Christ. We learn that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the last Adam. He is the, the greater Adam who perfectly reflects and images God's glory to a lost and a dying world. And we understand that he must be the, the perfect image of God in order to come along and then be the spotless sacrifice. He must be the perfect human fulfilling humanity's high calling perfectly so that he could then come and be the head of that new creation, which is the second half of this hymn. Okay, so it's in this image, in Christ's image then, that God's people, those who have been redeemed, are now being remade. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ there in context, from one degree of glory to another. One of the means God uses for our sanctification, our progressive sanctification is to behold Christ. And then in Romans 8.28 and 29, we learn that God works all things for good for those who love him. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Christ is the image of God. He's God in the flesh. He is the perfect human, the first of many brothers. To see Jesus is to see God. So then truly Jesus can say, as he does in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's because of the realities of this text that Jesus says that. Our goal in life 
It's to glorify God, to do what we were created to do, to do what we were designed to do. And so Christ then is our aim, our goal. We are truly living when we aim to be like Christ. And so Jesus fulfills humanity's original purpose, original design perfectly. And then in Christ, we are all now, those who love him and been united to him through salvation, are now fulfilling that same purpose. We're being renewed in the image of Christ. One commentator explains how humanity was made as the climax of the first creation. The true humanity of Jesus is the climax of the history of creation. And at the same time, the starting point of the new creation. From all eternity, Jesus had in his very nature been the image of God, reflecting perfectly the character and life of the Father. It was thus appropriate for him to be the image of God as man. From all eternity, he had held the same relation to the Father that humanity from its creation had been intended to bear. Humanity, he says, was designed to be the perfect vehicle for God's self-expression within his world so that he could himself live appropriately among his people as one of themselves, could rule and love over creation as himself a man. God made us for himself. So Jesus, as the image of the invisible God, highlights Christ's character, but also Christ's position. He's exactly like God. Indeed, he is God. Jesus didn't replace the God of the Old Testament. He's not an addition. He revealed him to us in his own person. But image, as we've seen and, and described here, is also a position. He is the perfect and the greater Adam who then qualifies to be Savior, to go to the cross for humanity, and so in this way then become Lord, become King. Christ is Redeemer, as we see in verse 14, but also creators will see in the rest of this text. So David Gardner explains how in Christ we see who God is. Christ and Redeemer. What God is like, a God of mercy, a God of love, and what God does. One who sends his son to rescue people from the dominion of darkness and bring about the reconciliation of all creation through his death on a cross. In short, Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. He couldn't be any higher. Therefore, live to please this one with your life. Live to please Jesus Christ because he is the image of the invisible God. And we please him here at least through submission and, and conformity. God's people are those who submit to Christ's position as Savior and Lord over humanity. And so if a person doesn't submit to Christ's lordship, then they don't submit to God the Father, which is exactly the modern-day Jewish problem, isn't it? They don't submit to God. And in rejecting Jesus, they reject God, and so they are without the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They're, they're devoid of, of any true religion. A person can't have God as Father if they don't have Jesus Christ as Lord. Practically speaking, this means that God's people are those who obey Jesus. And they obey Him radically. This is why Jesus said what He said in Matthew 7, 24. I mean, this, in, in a sense, provides the grounds for that. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, he said, and does them and obeys them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. God's people submit to the king of humanity. And then they also conform to his image. Isaiah 43, 7 explains that God's people were created. They were designed specifically to bring him glory. They were created to image forth his glory to the world as sons and vice regents. Humanity's purpose at large is one and the same. 
And so I believe this reality puts hands and feet to our purpose. We glorify God when we, when we become like Jesus Christ, when we get closer to his image, when we conform to his likeness. And God has promised in Romans 8, 28 and 29 that everything that happens to us is perfectly designed to make us like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand this well. We need to understand that our joy is uniquely and specifically connected to our purpose for being, for why we were designed. See, too often I think we rail against what God is doing in our lives because we don't trust uh, that God is working for our joy, that he's making us like Jesus Christ. Either we don't trust or we don't really truly care or desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. But he's using the circumstances of our lives to chip away those aspects of our character that don't fit the mold of Jesus Christ. Okay? So we must know, we must understand, and we must trust that this is for our joy in every circumstance. If we don't know that, if we don't trust that, if we're not excited about the fact that we're being conformed to the image of joy, if that doesn't register something on our joy meter that we're being conformed to Christ, if we have no desire to be conformed to Christ, then every time we hit a trial or some sort of suffering in our lives, we're going to be asking the question, why? And we're going to doubt God's goodness as it pertains to me. But all of this, though, illustrates Christ's absolute and utter supremacy, doesn't it? As the perfect image of God, he is our redeemer king. He is the one who rescued God's people. He is the servant of Isaiah. His position could not be any higher. And as this image... He is also our goal. Brothers and sisters, we're not being conformed into the image of your favorite celebrity or, or, or your favorite book that some biography or person that your, your favorite biography was written after. In context, we're not being conformed into the image of angels. We're not being conformed into the image of Moses or any other Jewish mythological character. Christ is our aim, our goal, and that reality highly exalts him. He is the preeminent one. He's worthy of all our love, all our devotion, and then some. He is worthy of our worship. And so live to please Jesus Christ with your life because he is the image of the invisible God. Next, we see that we live to please Christ because he is the firstborn of all of creation. Not only is he the image of the invisible God, as if that weren't enough, but he's also, as verse 15b says, the firstborn of all creation. Now, the word firstborn can simply mean the first child to be born in a series, and it's used that way sometimes, but it can also mean the child of privilege and special status. So some people who would seek to deny Christ's deity, and I would submit to you that they come to the text seeking to deny Christ's deity, but some who would deny Christ's deity, they latch onto that first idea, and so they say this proves there was a time when Jesus was not. Okay, that's the ancient Arian heresy. Jesus, in, in their mind, came into existence when he was born as a baby. But that clearly can't be the meaning here because in the next breath, right, a lot of heresies would just simply go away if people would just keep reading the text. But it can't be the meaning because in the next breath, Paul explains that in him, all things were created, which means that Jesus existed before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 17, if we keep reading, we learn that he is before all things. So just like the Father, and as God himself, Jesus eternally existed. 
He always has been the Son of God, eternally. And so the meaning here then must be the latter, that Jesus is the firstborn, which is to say that he is the child of privilege and special status. And this was a common Old Testament usage. Many examples, but we have Exodus 4.22, where the Lord told Moses, Then you should say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. The nation of Israel, as we know, is not a human, but a nation, a people. And so clearly the Lord's not speaking about a physical birth by a, a physical woman, but a position of privilege and special status, right? The firstborn, which is then later applied specifically to Jesus Christ in Matthew 2.15. And again, there are many other examples. Let me just share with you one more. In Hebrews 12.23, we read about the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And in context, this is speaking of the assembly of the redeemed. The people of Jesus are called the assembly of the firstborn, which is talking about uh, the group of people who claim the firstborn, this person of privilege and status, Jesus Christ, as their leader, as their king. So Paul's point then, in light of the heretical teaching that was floating around and that was harassing the Colossian believers, is that Jesus Christ is worthy of your worship. It's blasphemous to say that any other object of worship is needed. It's worship... It's blasphemous to say that, that anything other than Jesus Christ is needed in order to be truly spiritual. Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. All you need is Christ, period. Christ's person and his work, period. Stop the search. The King of Kings has been located, and here he is. You don't need anything else. Christianity is so simple. Right? Christianity is so simple. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's person in his work. He is the firstborn of all creation. He holds the position of honor and privilege in relation to the Father, far above all created beings. Brothers and sisters, Jesus couldn't be any higher. There are no biblical terms to describe his position of, of rank, his, his loftiness, in any other way than what is being described here as firstborn. And so this is really just another way for Paul to say what he says in Philippians for example, 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's another way of saying that. Jesus is supreme in his position of honor. His rank is preeminent. He is ruler over creation. So we bow the knee to Jesus Christ. His people bow the knee in recognition of his preeminent rank now. And then at the day of judgment, his enemies are going to be forced to bow the knee to this firstborn of all creation. Brothers and sisters, there is only one firstborn. There's not going to be another one coming along that's going to somehow outrank Jesus Christ. He's it. There's only one who ranks, ranks above all men and not just all men, but all beings. Bow to neither this one. Worship this one. Again, we have the right object of our worship. Romans 12, 1 says, as Jim so wonderfully pointed out a couple weeks ago, in response to God's glorious plan of redemption in and through Jesus Christ, we are to, by the mercies of God, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Brothers and sisters, if you do this, if you do what the text is saying to do and as Jim exhorted us to do, if you spend your life for Jesus Christ and for his kingdom, your life is not going to be wasted. You're never going to come to a place where you're like, man, I started following Jesus Christ and now I'm 
experiencing some disillusionment. That's never going to happen, ever. If you spend your life to promote a certain political candidate, maybe your life will have been wasted. They might get elected and you might be like, that's not what I was expecting, and be disillusioned. If you give your life for your country, your country might turn its back on you at some point in your life. I just saw a documentary about Pat Tillman, who is a, a former NFL, I think, safety for Arizona Cardinals. Anyways, he, joined, he left that and joined the Army. He was disillusioned. And then on top of that, he got killed in, I think, Afghanistan by friendly fire. That could happen if you spend your life for your country. It would be wasted. He wasted his life. If you live your life for any other cause than Jesus Christ, you may regret the time that you spent and the effort you spent in that pursuit, but you are never, ever, ever going to regret spending and being spent for Jesus Christ. He is the preeminent one. Firstborn of all creation, the Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, ruler of all creation. And this is why so many missionaries throughout the years were able to give up comfortable livings for Christ's sake. Right? They knew in light of eternity, in light of Christ's rank, that they would never regret any service to this preeminent one. In fact, Hudson Taylor, at the end of a life of service and, and many hardships and suffering, he said, I never made a sacrifice. He understood clearly that you don't sacrifice for one who is this glorious. That's ridiculous. It's your privilege to get to serve him. There's nothing in there about sacrifice. I think of Eric Liddell, a famous Scottish runner who won an Olympic gold medal in 1924. And on top of that accomplishment, which we probably know from the Chariots of Fire movie and so forth, but on top of that, he was at the same time a famous rugby player. Um, not just in his own nation, but around the world. If we were to try to compare him to some famous athlete in our day and age, we would be comparing him to the likes of LeBron James and Tom Brady. That wouldn't be a stretch. But in a biography of Eric's life called Pure Gold, which I commend to you, David McCaslin writes how Eric was off to run another race, one that would test him far above anything he had known. At the peak of his athletic career, with the world at his feet, 23-year-old Eric Liddell turned away from it all and set his face towards China to serve there as a missionary of Jesus Christ. He gave up everything, fame, glory, money, and even life itself. He served in China as a missionary until 1942, about a total of 17 years. But during World War II, he was placed in a Japanese intern camp, ended up dying of a brain tumor there at the age of 40. Many people said that he had wasted his talent and opportunity. They said it then. They said it when he, when he left his uh, lucrative position in Scotland. But Eric never said it. In fact, before he left for China, he was speaking at an evangelistic event for, for young people. And he said, in that context, have you ever sought a leader in everyday life? In Jesus Christ, you will find a leader worthy of all your devotion and mine. I looked for one I could admire, he says, and I found Christ. And once he found him, the search was over. Brothers and sisters, where are the El Eric Liddells in our day and age? Who today gives up lucrative sponsors and fame and glory for the cause of Jesus Christ? Has, has Christ changed? Has he somehow lost his little bit, maybe? Has he some, somehow lost some of his preeminence? How about in your life? 
Does your life accurately reflect Christ's value, his rank? If you're going to follow a leader, if you're going to follow someone, if you're going to dedicate your life to some sort of cause, then you want to follow the best. You want to follow one that's worthy. You want to follow one that isn't going to leave you in some state of disillusionment. And Jesus Christ is the best. He hasn't changed. He's still preeminent. If you want to make your life count, spend it on Christ. Live your life to please Him because He is the firstborn of all creation. And then lastly this morning, live to please Christ because He is the creator of all things. As if we can somehow handle any more glory, here we got verse 16. It says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, where the thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and the reason for this high status, this preeminence, is that for because by him all things are created. And so I believe this is one way to look at it is more support or explanation for why Jesus is preeminent. He is Lord of creation. And I think the English Standard Version here is a little confusing when it says by him all things are created. In Greek, it's a word that's regularly translated as in. So there are, there's some disagreement here with Greek grammarians as to whether this preposition be, should be thought of as instrumental by him, that is, Jesus is the means by which all things were created, or rather in him, meaning that he is the sphere in which all things were created. Uh, it seems to me to be the latter because the, the means or the instrumental meaning is highlighted at the end of the verse, same verse, and translated in ESV as through him. My understanding is that through him and by him convey the same meaning, and so it would be odd that Paul would repeat himself here when there's words that are kind of spaced in between there. Uh, so all that says, I think that uh, this, I take this to mean that in Christ all things were created. That is to say that Jesus is a sphere in which all things were created. And, and Bible scholars admit that this is a little hard to explain and a little hard to understand, uh, but in Ephesians 1.4, I think Paul's words here help when he writes of God's blessings in Christ, and he says, of Christ, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So that passage has the same construction as our text, and there it means that God's election takes place in Christ, which is to say that our election doesn't take, a place, doesn't take place apart from Christ. Our election, then, depends on Christ's person and on Christ's work. So creation, like our election also depends on Christ. The act of creation did not occur apart from Christ. Peter O'Brien explains how all things have been brought into existence by the creative act of God in Christ. Christ was present and active in Genesis 1-1 at the historical creation of all things. And that phrase, all things, here means all things. Everything that exists owes its very existence to Christ. That's Paul's main point here. So look around you. Everything you see owes its very existence to Christ. It's all his handiwork to include everything in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, that phrase heaven and earth I think is easy enough for us to understand. I believe it's referring to the Genesis account as much of this text is, at least making allusions there. And the book of Genesis describes the heavens and the earth kind of like a flannel graph. 
Anybody know what a flannel graph is? Some of you, well, it's like this felt board, picture like a PowerPoint thing, but it's not an electronical screen, it's just plain flannel, and then you stick these little images on there. Genesis kind of explains it like that. So you have the sky, flannel graph, the earth, flannel graph, and then everything is thrown on there. That's the heavens and the earth. Everything you can see, touch, and feel. But then, Paul adds to that, everything not seen is included here. You see, there's a spiritual realm of unseen beings and realities and rulers that we here in the West typically ignore. If we can't see it and touch it, feel it, taste it, then our empirical society says it doesn't exist. But that's not biblical thought. There is an unseen world. And so these invisible entities are cataloged for us here as well, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All of these things are speaking of certain powers, and it's kind of hard to distinguish and identify all these different entities as separate things. Thrones might refer to the class of those who rule. Dominions probably refers to those who rule in the spiritual realm. Rulers refers to those who wield authority. And then authorities refers maybe to those who have power. But you can see that there's quite a bit of overlap between all of those terms. Their edges are at least shaggy, which I think is Paul's point. Okay, Paul's argument is that whatever the power structure is, whatever you you can conjure up in your mind, whatever the realm, they all owe their very existence to Jesus Christ. So to pay some sort of homage to angels or elemental spirits of the world, as encouraged by these false teachers that we see if we fast forward to Colossians 2, to, to do that is quite inappropriate for the Christian and an utter waste of time. An utter waste of time. Brothers and sisters, those things owe their very existence to Jesus Christ. All things were created in him. Jesus Christ is preeminent. There is no power or authority that does not submit to Christ's will. No government or politician exists apart from Christ and his designs for them. So pagan religions, Islam, Dominic powers, worldly powers, China's president for life, Xi Jinping, Russia's Vladimir Putin, every cosmic power we can even think of, all of these things derive their very existence from Jesus Christ. Which is to say, they are submissive to his perfect creative purposes and designs for them. And they live and operate within those parameters. And Colossians 2 says that he is their head. They owe him their allegiance. Jesus created all things, not apart from the Father, but Jesus did create all things. All things were created in Christ, not apart from Christ. Therefore, give them, that is, give created things, earthly rulers, spiritual realms and rulers, etc., give them no heed. Fear Christ. Fear God. You know, in Reformed circles, we talk a lot about fearing God, but I don't think we talk enough about fearing God, but we talk some about fearing God. I don't know that we ever talk about fearing Christ. But as we've seen, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. All things were created in Christ, not a part of Christ, and so he is before all things. Jesus is God. He is a second member of the Trinity, so we're to fear Christ. He is the preeminent one. To fear Christ is to care more about what he thinks of you than what anybody else thinks of you. To fear Christ means to live and to operate within the reality of his existence and his preeminence. Let me say that again. To, to fear Christ means to live and operate 
in light of the reality of his existence and in light of the reality of his preeminence. And so this text, I think, illustrates for us the ridiculous nature of of fearing anyone but Christ. We should never wring our hands over the political scenes that are unfolding before our eyes in our nation and around the world. We shouldn't fear Iran or, or Russia or even our own government. Pay them no heed. To do that is to think too low of Jesus Christ. We should watch the news and instead of wringing our hands in fear, worry, and anxiety, our, our, our minds ought to be thinking, I wonder what Jesus Christ is doing in this particular situation for his own exaltation, for the Father's glory, and for our extreme joy. Amen? To fear Christ means to, to, to care more what he thinks of us than our government thinks of us. To fear Christ means to trust him when evil threatens. It means to know that he has everything under control for his perfect purposes. The ideology behind global terrorism owes its allegiance to Christ and is one day going to answer for its actions. And so the Bible clearly teaches what, that what wicked powers and rulers and authorities intended for evil, Christ intends for good. That is amazing. Fear Christ. Because Christ alone is preeminent. You see, the realities of this text, and we haven't even gotten to all of them, not even a part of them, but the realities of this text are the reasons why Jesus said the things that he said. It's because of this truth that Jesus can say, if these things weren't true, then the things that Jesus said would be absolutely crazy. Like in Matthew 10, 39, where he said, whoever, loses his, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It would be crazy if it wasn't all the things that we just said. But he is all these things. And so live your life to please Christ because he is the creator of all things. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the creator of all things. And so unashamedly, unreservably, live your life to please him. Jesus Christ alone is the preeminent one. Bow your knee before him. Live to exalt his name. Submit to his rule and reign and fear him. Live in light of the reality of his existence and the reality of his absolute preeminence. And so, brothers and sisters, let these truths of Christ motivate you toward greater faithfulness, toward greater purity, toward greater zeal. Let them drive you to your knees in reverent worship. Let them radicalize and mobilize you for the cause of Jesus Christ. Let, let his preeminence and his value be the motivating factor behind all of your evangelistic efforts and all of your ministries, to, all of your efforts to, to serve and, and to minister in his name. Any other pursuit is regrettable and is going to leave you disillusioned. Serve the preeminent one. Serve the supreme one, the dominant one. You have the right object of your worship. You haven't given your life to some sort of second-rate charlatan. You've given your life to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and you will never regret it. So don't ever let anybody challenge or downplay your zeal or your passion for Jesus Christ. Right? Those words, th those efforts, those attitudes are satanic. Because Christ is worthy of your zeal. He's worthy of your passion. The search is over. Christ is what everyone's looking for. And we as Christians have found what we've been looking for. We need to understand that everyone else is searching. Let's proclaim him. And so live to please Jesus Christ with your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this wonderful text. 
grow us in our understanding of these truths. Lord, even more importantly, help us to understand, at least in part, what the implications of these truths are. These things are facts, and if we believe these things as true, Lord, help us understand how they are going to radically change and affect our lives. Any other response than a radical response to these truths, Lord, we understand is, is beneath Christ. So, Lord, we desperately need your Spirit's help in this, so strengthen us towards that end. We love you and thank you. Amen.